Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. Thank you to everyone uh, for being with us uh, during these times that are far from the uh, the normals we all enjoyed uh, last month. Kevin Carr and I uh, co-chair the Labor and Employment Group at Spillman, uh, and uh, my partners, um, Eric Kinder and Kerry Grunman, are are also um, on the line. And we, we do labor and employment um, for a living uh, and um, over the last month have really, um, as you can imagine, uh, been focused almost exclusively on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impacts uh, on the workplace. What we found uh, was that unlike, um, you know, most questions during times of normalcy uh, that involve labor and employment and perhaps one other component like tax or like workers' comp or, or, or um, health and sa- environmental health, health and safety. The issues that we've uh, received um, uh, over the last month, certainly crescendoing over the last couple of weeks, have been much more multifaceted. And so um, three weeks ago, we put together a COVID-19 task force where really out of necessity, certainly not as uh, any kind of marketing gimmick, but out of necessity, we needed to have subject matter experts across the board to deal with these issues. Uh, We've had employment issues, of course, but those dovetail with OSHA issues and those dovetail with tax uh, issues that are associated uh, with the the, uh, Families First Corona uh, Virus Response Act that I'm just going to call the CRA today. Um, And... um, as well as intellectual property issues, et cetera. So our task force has been uh, addressing these, and we've got a series of webinars related to these issues. Today we're going to focus um, on the CRA in large part. Um, the way we like to do our webinars is to reach out on the front end and, um, and get questions from people who are likely to attend so that we can address them. And... Um, uh, I'll give you some of the ones uh, we try to build them all actually uh, into uh, responses, but some of the um, specifics that we had that we'll address kind of on the front end are um, uh, please clarify the two week and 12 week pay requirements to a small business. If, if there's a shutdown under the CRA, are there any retroactivity on benefits before uh, April 1st? Uh, will, will the CRA apply retroactively who employees have already been absent for qualifying reasons? How will tax credits be provided? How does this extra leave we've already provided to employees count if at all toward employees under the act? So I'll, I'll address those questions, uh, specifically. Um, and so we'll carry in Eric, but we'll, we'll try to address them all generally as well. At the end of the day, uh, we want to make sure that your questions are answered, um, uh, you know, based on your unique situation. So you'll have our contact information. And while I do subscribe to the theory that in most events, there's no such thing as a free lunch, uh, here there really is. You can have a, you know, a free call off of, off of, uh, off of the clock, so to speak, with us to make sure that your questions are answered. Uh, we think it's important to everyone, uh, during these times that we operate, uh, effectively and efficiently. Um, so with, um, you know, with that in mind, we're, we're going to progress and try to talk about the CRA uh, in the context of uh, global issues, as well as in response to specific questions that you guys have pre-populated. Um, I will also tell you that unlike uh, a lot of webinars that we do, um, there are going to be more it depends and we believe uh, type responses in this one than normal. As you know, 
things are, are dynamic. Uh, we were working we, in the wee hours this morning on client-centric issues. Uh, and then, you know, they, you know, there's a, there's a, a deal, um, uh, brokered in the middle of the night last night. And my partner and I are talking about the CARES Act and what impact that has. And of course, there are going to be employment related impacts on that, but we don't have a bill yet. So there will be more speculation, um, discussed here, but we've tried to limit that uh, to a minimum. Um, we know that you guys are getting, uh, information from a million sources at a million miles an hour. And we took a breath at the beginning of this and decided uh, that, you know, we're not going to be first at the sake of being, you know, at the sake of being right. So we have tried to be right and precise. And while we will address a couple of things that we don't know about yet because uh, the, the definitive regulations are not out uh, and the CARES uh, deal that was uh, shaken or subject of handshaking last night hasn't been out, we are probably... Uh, you know, we're, we're going to air certainly more on the side of what is fact right now. So um, in terms of what is uh, fact right now, Carrie, um, do we know definitively when the CRA um, is going to take effect? And do we know definitively when it is going to sunset? Uh, guys, so we do, you know, obviously what we want to start talking about today is, um, and I will attempt to use the acronym CRA, but the Families First Coronavirus Response Act was passed in mid-March, and many of your questions kind of deal with um, what does that act mean, what does it mean for me, and really what do we have to do? So we're talking about three main elements for purposes of our talk today, which is the paid sick leave to employees the expansion of family and medical leave rights, and the use of the payroll tax to fund the leave. Now, um, I had been telling people um, for many days um, that the date of effectiveness for the act was April 2nd, 2020. Um, it was passed, and the language in the act reflected that it would be effective 15 days after passage. Um, in every other circumstance, and by that I mean 999 times out of 1,000, the way that you would count would be to make day one the 17th of March. Um, but recent DOL guidance has indicated that they are counting the 15-day period prior to effectiveness as of the date of signature of the act. So what you need to know is this act, including the paid family leave, the paid sick leave, and the ability to take the credit are all going to be effective April 1st, 2020. Um, we've also been told through the text of the law that it sunsets at the end of this year. Many of you have asked the question of, well, what about the benefits that we've been offering before April 1st, 2020? Um, yesterday, the Department of Labor issued guidance um, and answered in a series of Q&A questions um, they answered the question as to whether there was any retroactive application of the act, and they answered that question that the answer is definitively no. So the leave that you are providing right now is not leave that will be covered by the act that goes into effect on April. So let's talk gotcha. about sort of the question of who the act applies to, and, and please feel free to jump in. Um, so for, for those of you who had questions about whether or not it applied retroactively, we know the answer. But the more complicated question is, does it apply to you at all as it is defined? And as written, the, the act applies to private employers with fewer than 500 employees 
and public sector employees. Focusing on the private employers piece, um, that definition of fewer than 500 is applicable to both the paid sick leave and the expanded family medical leave. As to both of those particular provisions, however, the Secretary of Labor is specifically entitled to exempt employers with less than 50 employees if they can show compliance will jeopardize, quote, the viability of the business as a going concern. Now, you, you may have heard me yesterday talking about the, or you may have heard me talking about the DOL guidance that was issued yesterday um, while they touched on some of the issues that are going to be determined by their regulations, the exact definition of this was not addressed. We expect additional guidance from the Department of Labor to be issued in April that will address this particular provision. Um, Eric, one of the questions that I saw and that we received um, related to this question of the exemptions in the Act for healthcare providers and emergency responders and whether or not any, um, any exemptions existed under a, I think it's a CISA or a CISA memo. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, thank you, Carrie, and good morning, everybody. Um, a lot of folks that are in what would be called essential businesses have, have seen the the CISA memo, which goes to a great deal of detail in defining who is an essential uh, employer. Um, that, however, really applies more to the status of whether or not these shelter-in-place laws or stay-at-home laws are going to apply. It is not really a perfect connection into whether an individual is a healthcare provider or an emergency responder. And a lot of it is because, um, say, a security officer, that is an essential person, but they're not really responding and they're not providing healthcare. So it's a very important memo and it's going to be very applicable for determining whether or not you are an essential business. It isn't that useful in determining whether or not an individual you have in your employee is exempt under the CRA. Hey, uh, this is Kevin Carr, um, and uh, I want to um, uh, chat with uh, Kinder. Uh, Eric, uh, do you know um, whether or not for that 500 employee, for our, for our clients who are on the, the border uh, or on the fence uh, right up against it, the 500 number, does it include um, uh, part-time employees, independent contractors, et cetera? What group um, of, of types of employees are included? in the 500 threshold? Um, that is a great question. And I know that's gonna be a concern for folks that are right there on sort of the bubble, so to speak. It is a very broad interpretation. The DOL has said, and that was our opinion going in, it defines employees as basically any employee. And so that includes full-time, that includes part-time employees counted just one for one. That would include any employees that you have on leave, it would include any employees that you have who are um, temporary employees, who are co-employed, so to speak, uh, with a temporary agency. Count them all. The other thing the DOL did was, in the guidance they put out yesterday is they announced that 
determining whether or not you are a covered employer is going to be made when a given employee requests leave. And yes, what that means is if on April 2nd, you have, you know, I'll say, you know, I'll say April 1st, because that's the first day that we are under the uh, provisions, you have 503 employees, you're not covered. If because of attrition for various reasons in this very difficult time, on April 7, you drop down to 498 employees, you're covered. And anybody who then requests leave is going to be able to make that claim and is entitled to those hours. That's really kind of an unfair result, but that's just that that's the way the statutes operate. And when we get to the tax credits, it's really important because even if from a fairness perspective, you give the paid leave to the person who requests it when you're at 503 employees, you're not going to be able to get the tax credit for that because it is not covered leave. Sorry, Kevin. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Carrie. Just for everybody on the uh, on the call, uh, we're obviously practicing what we preach and social distancing. And Carrie, who's one of my partners in Winston, and Eric Kinder, and um, in Charleston, we're all at, at different places at our homes and different. Uh, so normally we can see each other and pass notes and uh, and have visual physical cues and not step on each other. But today it may be a little different since we're. Apart, I was going to say, Carrie, um, uh, probably on your transition, on the um, on the paid sick leave on the emergency front, uh, can we start by kind of breaking down that leave first? Uh, although most people are, are are familiar with it, breaking it down in terms of of uh, what the act requires. Absolutely, um, Kevin. So, starting with the paid sick leave provision of of the CFA. Uh, or the CRA, I apologize, employees are going to be entitled to two weeks of paid leave. Now, let me start by saying you'll see that I've underlined the word all. As it relates to the two weeks of paid sick leave, all employees, regardless of their length of service with you, are going to be eligible for this leave. However, they are only eligible for this leave if they cannot work or note telework, I know some of you have asked questions about the teleworking piece, but it's only if they cannot work or telework, and then that's because of one of six specified reasons. Um, the first three really relate to the employee themselves and them either having COVID-19 or being exposed to someone with COVID-19. So as to the first, you have someone who is either quarantined or under an isolation order from a state uh, federal or local order, they were advised by healthcare provider to quarantine, or they're experiencing symptoms and seeking a medical diagnosis. The other three really relate primarily to the employee's interactions with others. So the fourth reason they may need paid sick leave is because they're caring for an individual who either has COVID-19 or who has been advised to quarantine. Number five, and the one I'm sure that you all are seeing coming up most often, is that you have an employee who is caring for a son or daughter because their school is closed or their child care is unavailable due to COVID-19. And finally, 
it's, it's whether or not the employee is experiencing any other substantially similar condition as specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, at this point, we haven't seen any um, substantially similar conditions specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, but we have been treating that as somewhat of a catch-all and keeping, um, uh, keeping a lookout to see whether they issue any guidance as to this regulation. Now, important Jerry, to know... Jerry, may I interrupt you real quick? We have two please. questions uh, that are re related to that. Number one is um, under the paid sick leave um, provision that um, or trigger where government quarantine or isolation order um, uh, related to COVID-19 is in place, does that apply to these stay-at-home orders being issued by various local and state leaders across uh, the country. And the second um, uh, question is, um, as it relates to um, son and daughter um, definition, does that include folks uh, who are in loco parentis or grandparents, et cetera, who are caring for children who are home from school? Do you want to take the first one? And then, Kinder, would you mind thinking about the second one? So, guys, you know, the, the question as to whether these shelter-in-place and stay-at-home orders are going to qualify under the first type of leave um, is going to depend a little bit. Um, and I, I know Eric has some thoughts on this, and he's going to weigh in. Um, but we think that it's particularly relevant the nature of the order in place in your state. Um, some states like Virginia and North Carolina have yet to issue shelter in place, um, though localities in North Carolina, Mecklenburg County, for example, Polk County, um, among others, have issued local shelter in place. We think those are different um, than these orders mandating closure of certain segments of the business population. Um, that said, prior case law, so case law on issues that preceded COVID-19 but dealt with other types of illnesses and, and pandemic issues, have, have often not defined um, shelter-in-place or stay-at-home orders as being covered, though we suspect that here that the government will define those orders to be the sort of state or federal or local orders um, as defined in the first um, type of potential paid sick leave, um, which is listed here as the employees under a government quarantine or isolation order. Um, Eric, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that's basically where I am coming down on this. I believe if you have been told to shelter in place, the distinction between that and a quarantine is a distinction without a difference, especially when you look at the purpose of the CRA which really is to protect individuals uh, who are unable to work because of this pandemic. DOL may disagree with me. The DOL disagreed with me when I said that April 2nd was the effective date. Um, and so we're obviously keeping an eye on that. Now, if it is not literally a restriction on your movement, uh, the uh, orders that uh, Carrie described earlier that are in effect in some parts of North Carolina, I don't think that then reaches the level of an actual quarantine, and that wouldn't be covered. 
but this is as gray as gray can be. And we're, I think we're all sort of waiting right now on, on what the DOL says. Yeah, Carrie? I, I think so. And, yeah. you know, Eric and I have talked a lot about this in part because um, there, there is a fine distinction to be made. Um, many of you saw both Virginia and West Virginia or Virginia and North Carolina issue orders that closed certain types of businesses but did not ultimately issue excuse me, a shelter-in-place order. Um, the difference, we think, between the two, I think, as Eric was saying, is all those certain businesses were required to close, no specific quarantine obligations were imposed on those employees as a result of the, of the orders that were less than a shelter-in-place. Um, we will continue to evaluate this. Um, DOL regulations are likely um, to further put meat on the bones as to how they're defining the phrase, a government quarantine or isolation order. But for the time being, we believe that it would be appropriate for you to determine and treat a, a state-based stay-at-home order as qualifying under option one. And I can only imagine how frustrating that is for some of you that are out there listening, that you're going, we're looking to you for guidance. Well, we've got our best opinion, but it, it, it's just crazy time. Thank you, Eric. And yeah, I, I definitely concur. I mean, it's going to be, I think it's order by order. And I think you need to get with your legal counsel to, to uh, compare the text uh, of your order to what we know about the CRA as well as uh, the, the intent, uh, keeping in mind the broad intent of the statute, which is remedial and protective um, from an you know, employee-centric uh, position. Uh, real quick, I don't want to, I don't want to leave the, the question hanging uh, right. that we had uh, pre-seminar. Pre is it only biological son and doctor, daughter, or is it uh, an, an adopted sons and daughters, or is it broader for the in loco folks? Uh, they, ad they adopt it within uh, the CRA, the definitions for son or daughter as used as uh, the FMLA. So hopefully everybody's familiar with that. And that includes biological, adopted, foster, um, or standing in loco parentis. So it, it, it's a broad definition, but it's the same one we've been using for years under the FMLA. Um, the only caveat I'll give to you guys on that is that it is a child under the age of 18. Um, a child, as Kevin's just defined, but under the age of 18. Right. Which is, again, the same definition for the FML. But, yes, that is a very good one. Got it, sir. Let's talk uh, quickly. Uh, not quickly, but let's, uh, let's talk and walk through um, methodically the amount of paid sick leave. Um, applicable, uh, the, the different levels based on the different triggering conditions. Uh, Carrie, can you walk us through that, please? I can. So, uh, the as I said before, I broke the six reasons up into two batches and described the first three as being employee-centric. Um, the law says that for one of those three reasons that forces an employee to need leave, they are entitled to two weeks of paid sick leave at 100% pay. Now, the limits on that are that two weeks is up to 80 hours, and it's based upon their regular rates of employment. Um, that said, there are caps and limits imposed on that number, 
essentially you need to pay the employee what they would normally pay up to $511 per day. And then for um, reasons four through six, importantly, which includes the leave um, related to childcare, you are only paying employees at two thirds pay. And that is, you know, up to $200 per day. Part-time employees are obviously going to be calculated a little bit differently. It's going to depend on um, whether they are regular part-time employees, meaning they work a set schedule, or whether they work variable hours. But you will prorate the amount of um, their pay based upon the hours they work. Um, for part-time employees who work a standard schedule, you'll calculate that basic equivalent to their average number of hours worked over a two-week period. And then you would pay that at 100% of whatever that number is for reasons one through three and two-thirds of that for reasons four through six. Thanks, Carrie. Um, we drew, just for everyone in attendance, we drew straws um, at uh, the beginning uh, of the webinar, and I drew the short one. So I get to give all of the bad news. Um, the um, page or slide nine on additional points um, we've had a number of employers uh, who have provided leave consistent with their, their own policies or perhaps even in addition to policies to try to respond um, uh, appropriately with their uh, employees. And we've had numerous questions as to whether or not um, there's retroactive application. Unfortunately, uh, there is not because this um, CRA leave is leave in addition to anything we've already provided or provided pursuant to our policies. So um, we cannot uh, get credit uh, as, as good employers for, for providing um, leave in advance of April 1. Additionally, in the same vein, uh, uh, we are not uh, able to require employees to burn off PTO, paid leave, vacation, et cetera, uh, before the paid sick leave. Uh, so um, that that is what it is, but effectively we're gonna be measured um, in terms of our ability to recoup some of that by tax credits that we'll discuss in a little while based on what we do from April 1st forward. Um, and guys, I've just been told to bear with me right now. You know, as we said, we're working with technology from three separate locations. Um, I've been told that we may be getting a lot of questions from you all that right now we can't see. And um, so I am in the process of getting copies of those questions, and um, we're going to try to get answers to some of your questions that have been popping up here in the course of the webinar. Um, so if we loop back, we're going to proceed on until we get that list. Um, but once we get those questions, if we loop back to some topics we've just covered, uh, don't worry, we're going to look to try to get your questions answered. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, while you're looking for those, um, Eric, um, We'll, we'll kind of we'll call an audible here, here, Carrie, and let you do that. And uh, Kinder on on slide ten as it relates to um, the uh, paid medical leave. Um, the the eligibility is uh, on the page of payment medical leave. The eligibility is different than traditional FMLA analysis in terms of employees who are eligible. Correct. Correct, and I, I apologize. As Kevin said, I'm working from home, and uh, my my cat wanted to join. So, 
Uh, what you have under the FMLA amendments, this Emergency Act, is one additional reason that you qualify uh, or an employee can qualify for FML. And that is an individual who is unable to work or telework, and that's a very important point, um, because of the need to care for a son or daughter who is unable to go to school, in essence, or, or their child care facility has been closed. This is the only reason that there is the extended paid FML under this emergency act. All of the standard FML requirements for I need to have an employee here for 12 months, they need to work 1,250 hours, those are gone. It is simply a matter that the employee must have been employed for at least 30 days uh, with you. If they meet that very minimum standard and the schools are closed, and we all know the schools are closed, then they are going to be able to get that emergency leave. Uh, one thing I think is really important on this is what about some sort of certification? We're expecting the DOL to come forth with some documentation to track that. What I would say now is doing the best you can, use the forms that you have for the FML request that you would normally get. And with that, just simply document, we're granting leave for this reason, this person is eligible. That way you've got a paper trail of the request. Now, what is this uh, leave that is provided? Well, it's 12 weeks of leave. As I have interpreted the act, it is just another reason that you would get FMLA leave. I don't see it as being an additional 12 weeks. It's just another reason that an employee can qualify for FML. But it has a special provision that the first 10 days are unpaid, standard FMLA practice there. But of course, this is a reason that would be covered for uh, paid sick leave under the CRI. The remaining duration is then paid at two-thirds of the employee's regular rate of pay. That's the same amount the person would get under the federal sick leave. Um, and it's capped, again, at $200 per day or $10,000 in total for the employee. If you have an individual who is part-time, what they say is you go and do a look back at the same as with the paid sick leave. And they want you to look back over a six-month period if you have a part-time person who is of uncertain hours. In essence, meaning if you have an employee who is part-time, you can't just cut their hours for this week and say that is the new normal. I'm going to pay them based on this last week. You're going to have to go back for a six-month period and, and check that. Kevin? So, guys, to go back... Um, Sorry, Kevin. Um, I think we answered it a second ago, but um, one of the questions here is, is this two weeks of paid sick leave, or also I'll add in, is any of this um, expanded family and medical leave, how does it play with your existing um, leave policies and PTO? Um, and here's my personal opinion that I'll throw out there, and I'll let Kevin and Eric agree or disagree with me. Um, Basically, the way it's going to work is, A, once April 1st hits, you cannot force your employees to use their PTO or sick leave before they can access the leave that's provided under this law. So in, in my mind, it's, it's completely in addition. I don't think the law 
speaks to whether or not employees could use any any partial PTO if they're only receiving two-thirds of their pay under the Act. Uh, Kevin and Eric, I'd love to have you weigh in on that. But then um, an additional question that we received is what about the folks who are out right now? Um, folks who are out of work right now, i.e. in the time period before April 1st, they're, one, they're not covered by the Act. They are not subsequently, once we hit April 1st, going to become covered by the Act. They are entitled to whatever leave, paid or otherwise, that is available under your current policies. And you all have some flexibility as to whether or not you choose to make that paid or unpaid if they don't have leave. Yeah, we also had a question in the, yeah, uh, two things. I, I believe that employers should err on the side of allowing employees to make up the one-third difference on compensation from any leave of absence uh, or during any leave of absence. So if I've got, you know, uh, one day of, uh, of PTO, I, I don't have a problem with employers um, allowing employees uh, to take those uh, that one day in three one third increments to make three of the one third uh, two third days they have whole, and I think the act again, if you look at uh, the the intent of the act and the provisions relating to leave, it basically says that it's the employee's decision as to whether or not to use leave, and we can't make them. I think that's the import. So, I think if I think if an employee says, "Hey, I want to use my leave to supplement the one third, uh, I would advise employers. Uh, while while not you know while not ironclad in the in the um, statute, I would I would think that the best advice there is to allow them to use it. Um, I also we also got a question, and we do appreciate your questions and continue to send them. Um, and Pamela and Carrie, thank you for um, bringing those front and center. Kind of looping back, there was a question uh, on um, could we clarify the impact of the uh, CRA on businesses and employed 50 and under. We'll, we'll do that here in a minute, if you don't mind. We've got a slide on kind of good faith compliance on the front end. And, yes, it's an issue, and we'll give you good advice on that. But I wanted to let you know we got that question. We're certainly uh, co-letting the others, and we'll, we'll respond. Um, Finally, guys, um, before we move, Kevin, we've gotten another email with more questions. It, it, the question is it relates to this designation by some states of businesses that are, quote, essential businesses. Um, in, as it relates to this shelter-in-place law. Um, and the question is whether the paid sick leave still applies. I, this is going to be the first time that I'm going to say in this presentation it, that the answer is it depends. Um, an employee who is seeking leave um, under one of the other paid sick leave provisions would still be entitled to sick leave. But if they were seeking leave under the first prong and were an essential business, then by definition, they would not be subject to a quarantine or isolation order. But I don't think that that says anything about the applicability of the remaining five reasons why an employee might need paid sick leave um, under the law. That's right. I agree with that completely. Yeah. We also had a question, which is a good one on this, on this point, as it relates to, to providing um, leave. If an employee is unable to telework and has children that do not have childcare available, i.e. school or daycare closes, will they be eligible for leave if their spouse is able to telework and watch the children while working? Um, I would say that answer depends on whether or not the employee and spouse both work, both work for you. I would, I would think it's analogous, and I've given advice that if that, that is analogous, 
to a situation under the FMLA for the birth of a child where you can split the leave in half. Uh, you know, it's a total of 12 weeks leave. I think there you can start making a determination with both employees work for you. If both employees do not work for you, uh, the act does not provide an exception uh, for, um, you know, a situation where one parent who does not work for you um, is at home. I don't believe we can or should um, uh, argue that we're not going to give our employee leave because that parent uh, uh, can can work while the other one takes care of the kids. Uh, the statute is if if you you know need to stay at home, take care of your kids throughout of school, you get the leave. So good question, but I would not I would not split the hair unless uh, both employees are actually working for the same employer. And Kevin, the reason for that is. I think personally is because this the primary piece of legislation that's giving leave to folks to care for their kids is an expansion of the Family Medical Leave Act. And guys, remember, if we weren't talking about the coronavirus and we were just having a typical FMLA webinar, you guys wouldn't say, well, do we get to ask more questions? Um, you get to ask the questions that the Family and Medical Leave Act allows. Is there a need for leave? And I don't think that that's going to allow you to probe into the, well, how much do you really need to care for your kids? Can't, can't grandma watch the kids? Don't you have a neighbor? I think in this particular case, um, your ability you don't seem to like you really love the kids. <laughs> Maybe just yeah. child one, but not child two. Um, I think you're <laughs> going to be able to ask questions about, is it a son or daughter? Is their school closed, et cetera? But that beyond that, you're going to have to, to stay within the parameters that are pretty typical in the FMLA context. Good. I, I, uh, it's not that all questions aren't important. Um, I, um, I want to make sure that we get into, um, you know, all the questions uh, in and out, but I will, uh, there are a couple that I, I do think um, really merit further discussion on different slides. So I may, I may just go ahead and, um, <clears throat> and not address those now and deal with them here in a little bit. Um, the next question that we've, that, that was, and what we've done is we've, we've pre-populated some questions here that was, that were based on, um, you know, a critical mass of similar questions, um, that we received pre-webinar. Uh, and on slide 12 is, can we just close the business and lay everyone off, uh, to avoid, um, you know, the CRA terms? Um, Mr. Kinder, can, I mean, is there, is this a law that requires businesses to stay open no matter what, uh, or are businesses allowed uh, to make layoffs? And if so, uh, how best to make sure that they do not appear on their face to be retaliatory or discriminatory decisions in light of this new statute? Well, there is nothing within the CRA that would prohibit an employer from making the very tough decision that they need to lay individuals off. Um, and because you are just not going to be able to make any sort of payroll in the near future. Um, I don't believe that would necessarily be retaliatory as long as you are doing it in some sort of across the board or category fashion. Certainly, you can't be laying people off on the grounds of, I think you're more likely to make a claim for federal leave. Or I know you've got a kid. I know schools are closed. I'm laying all the parents off. That obviously is going to be uh, retaliatory and, and interference of federal rights. One thing I would tell employers to keep in mind, and this is going to be a one-on-one -on -one decision, is you know, bear in mind, 
you do get the tax credit uh, as far as paying for the federal leave. And I realize that's not going to be great on a cash flow issue, but really be keeping in mind what is uh, should be passed in the next day or so. The agreement that was reached in the Senate on uh, the, the phase three legislation, there's going to be loans that are available and there may also be additional credits available to employers if they don't reduce headcount. And these are all, I think, factors that you should be keeping in mind. And again, this is all sort of an employer-by-employer decision. There's no way that we can cover every possible scenario in this webinar. Now, guys, with any leave, just just remember, I know know Eric touched on it, but remember, for the first two weeks of the Expanded Family and Medical Leave Act, it's unpaid. So if you have an employee who you, who is telling you that they can't be at work after April 1st because of their kids, go ahead and make sure that you all are designating that leave as covered so that you can go ahead and begin to run the clock. Um, Eric, do you know, have we seen any guidance on, um, or do you have any insight as to whether you think that they're ultimately going to allow employees to take this emergency FMLA leave on an intermittent basis? As of now, what I am saying is use the general FML rules, which would be you have to allow it on an intermittent basis if medically necessary. I don't know how that would apply for child care. Employers always have the right to grant FML on an intermittent basis, which probably got a chuckle from somebody out there in the audience thinking, why on earth do I want to voluntarily um, make my life that much more difficult, but you do have that right. Interesting, in the passing of the act, it originally said this could be taken intermittently. That was removed. I read that and and interpret that to mean this is not mandatory intermittent as far as the sick leave, or excuse me, the, the new emergency FML. Though, again, if somehow there's a scenario where there is some medically necessary reason for it, probably can be taken intermittently. Um, and just to follow up, one of the things that Carrie said, yeah, the first two weeks are unpaid for the FML. But the reason that you get the emergency FML is one of the reasons that you get uh, federal paid sick leave. They literally were drafted in a way um, so that they worked hand in hand, so that they, they don't run consecutively, they are to run concurrently. Um, so um, we've gotten a couple questions, Kevin, about the 500 employee limit yeah, that we talked I, about I earlier. That. They're asking us to suit, uh, to say in one instance, and they're asking about uh, types of employees. I, we, we, we work with universities and are doing the analysis uh, this week, and we have taken the approach with universities. The question was, with universities, and I suppose this could, could be broader, but student, student workers, are they counted? Um, you know, adjuncts, uh, et cetera. Our point, you know, our position is under the definition of the act, uh, it is fair game to count uh, any W-2 employee. Um, I wouldn't count 1099s necessarily. I mean, I think that's something you need to deal with your counsel on. But if it's a W-2 employee, um, and if we, if we W-2 our student workers, if we W-2 our adjunct professors, et cetera, I think it's fair game to count those um, into the 500 um, uh, threshold. Additionally, there was a question as to whether or not we envision 
this to be expanded broader beyond 500. And at, you know, and I definitely don't want to talk politics. I will talk intent. This is intended to be small business. I think the government is looking as part of uh, CARES, and you'll we'll see that as it comes out uh, more today and tomorrow at big business um, bailout. It's not a charged word in my world. It's just it is what it is. Bailouts or or, or what have you. And so I don't see uh, this uh, being expanded beyond the 500 person uh, kind of cap on what is a small to mid mid sized business. Obviously, it could be wildly wrong, but I, I think this is where we are for the time being at this level. Kevin, I, I think the stated reason, believe it or not, that's up to you, uh, for limiting this to fewer than 500 employees is Congress didn't want to be seen as giving a tax credit to mammoth employers. That's right. I, 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 don't think, I haven't seen anything in the CARES Act or Phase 3 that would tell me that they're they're leading in another direction. But so again, what that means, that is, what, knows? But the ultimate conclusion to that is, is if you, whether we're counting part-time, using the expansive definition under the recent guidance from the Department of Labor, if you have 500 or more employees, as of the date the leave is requested, you are not covered by either the paid seat sick leave law or the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Act. So, um, you know, if you feel like you are on that cusp or on that bubble, please feel free to reach out to council. We're happy to help you walk through that math to figure out what makes sense. Um, and then another question, you know, as you see, the paid sick leave is available immediately, but the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Act is only available once an employee has been with you for 30 days. Um, I think that the way to determine if you have an employee, let's say, who, who on April 1st won't have been with you for 30 days, but will hit that 30-day mark shortly thereafter, um, I suspect that the time period for making the determination as to whether or not they're eligible for leave is the time period of the request. Um, you know, as you know now, you know, there has been case law under standard FMLA cases about employees who notify you um, of the need for future FMLA leave at a time when they are not presently eligible for it. Um, and that has created liability for employers for retaliation and interference with FMLA when they when they subsequently make a determination to, to fire or terminate or take other disciplinary action. I think Terry, the same I would say that's rule. exactly what the statute says. I mean, it, it really does say you are eligible after 30 days of employment. So here, guys, if somebody's going to hit it on April 15th, I think they're still going to qualify for the lead. As of April 15th. But not until April 15th. So uh, it, we've got a um, – we've got a – slide 14 is the payroll tax credit. Uh, I am going to um, – you know, beware of the lawyer who knows all things. Okay, that you know that that's always been the answer to all things requires a team approach. So we'll talk to you a little bit about the payroll tax credit. Uh, we're going to, we're putting together a webinar just on that. We have a tax department, um, which which I affectionately refer to, um, you know, as the, uh, the smart guys in the firm, all with LLMs who are looking at not only the tax credit issue and advising on that but also are looking at and monitoring closely the bill that will come out of this CARES agreement and its impact on employers in terms of access to small business loans that appear to be a function of payroll uh, that are loans you don't have to pay back if you do certain, uh, keep certain payroll levels, et cetera. 
And also we have, they're looking at small business association incentives, et cetera. So I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be uh, a payroll tax expert. And uh, quite frankly, um, would defer to others on that. But I do want to highlight the fact that as we are factoring in um, those, I mean, obviously those abilities to get credit, look at, um, look at those and factor those in when we're making the decision long-term on, on laying off personnel and look at cares. You need to deal with uh, your, your legal team and your tax, uh, uh, tax lawyers to make sure that you're making personnel decisions that are not penny wise and pound foolish in the short term. There is a dollar for dollar uh, reimbursement tax credit against social security taxes for the two thirds leave. And in some cases, um, uh, in some cases, the cost of benefits, most are limited to payroll, but for people who are sick and getting the leave, there is a, the ability to also include a tax offset and reimbursement dollar for dollar against social security taxes. The IRS is supposed to continue to issue rev rules and, and guidance this week. Um, and uh, the, as best we can tell, the deal reached by, by handshake last night will include, as I mentioned, um, tax or low, low interest rate, federally government-backed loans that are predicated in a function of uh, a multiplier times your payroll, and they do not have to be paid back, provided that you maintain certain payroll levels for certain periods of time. Those details will come out as it makes it to the bill. But all of those factors obviously should be considered when evaluating the need to uh, lay people off, how many, when we bring them back, and how. So there's a payroll tax credit right now um, in the CRA, and there will be a dovetailing, um, you know, being a dovetailing uh, provision, we believe, in CARES. Uh, so you need to factor those in when we're looking at employment um, situations because there may be benefits on the backside that we would overlook. Uh, if we simply make this a personnel-specific uh, decision. Anything to add on that, uh, Eric or Karen? No, I highly recommend that you consult a tax professional. Um, I am not one. Um, but, you know, so more details will be coming out from that, and our Spillman team is really well-equipped to answer those questions. Um, Kevin, I know we've gotten a lot of questions, and, and you promised to talk about it at a future slide. But we've gotten a lot of questions about what should um, businesses with fewer than 50 employees do. So yeah, let's, um, here's let's, deal the, with it. let's deal with it now. Yeah, here's the good news, guys. Um, the Department of Labor, the IRS, et cetera, have provided notice that they will be um, observing a 30-day non-enforcement period um, for those employers who are acting reasonably and in good faith to comply with the law. So. Um, guidance from the Department of Labor yesterday said that good faith exists when um, violations are remedied and the employee is made whole as soon as practical, when um, violations aren't willful, and when the DOL receives a written commitment from the employer to comply. So the latter point means that likely the DOL will have contacted you and want you to enter into a conciliation agreement. So how does this apply to an employer with fewer than 10, fewer than 20, all the way up to that fewer than 50 threshold? The Department of Labor has said that employers under, with, with fewer than 50 employees should keep, quote, documentation to establish the um, impact on your business and how it would jeopardize your ongoing operations. 
Now, they have simultaneously asked that you not provide that paperwork to them right now. So what I would propose at this time that a business under 50 do who believes that they are unable to comply with these paid sick leave and emergency family and medical leave act provisions is to sit down with your council and, and, and your business leaders and start to truly document with supporting documentation the reasons why you can't comply with the law. And then when April 1st hits, you would not begin paying employees for paid sick leave. You would take this period, make a good faith determination as to whether or not you can or can't pay. If you determine that you can't, um, then if the Department of Labor comes around, then you are prepared to provide them with the documentation that you have compiled in support of your position. Evan, Eric, any thoughts on that? No, I think that's sound advice. I mean, I think there is a little bit of assumption of the risk, but I think the signal is, um, look, if you have less than 50s um, and you, you know, you, it's going to be a hardship for you and you can demonstrate it, um, we're, you know, that's going to, you know, in all likelihood, that's going to be good. So I'm not telling you to ignore your obligations uh, under this act if you're under 50, but I'm telling you, if we can, if we can demonstrate with real-time documentation, not documentation we create, uh, you know, the day after the DOL knocks on our door four months from now. But if we have real-time documentation of the hit it will take that it will cause uh, on our business, um, I think that's what you would need. Uh, uh, and couple that, again, with other good-faith measures uh, to comply by pro providing leave when you can, et cetera, and otherwise dealing with this pandemic consistent with the spirit of the act, but not necessarily providing all of the leave that they're entitled to if you were a 51 to 499 person employer because of your size. So yeah, I would a little bit. add the caveat that this, the standard is jeopardize the viability of the business as a going concern. So when you're sitting with your council, with your business leaders, um, push hard on that. You're going to have the 30 day window from the DOL. That doesn't necessarily mean that our, our friendly plaintiffs bar will, will abide by that. Um, now, one, one question of the really here, good guys. Under the Family Medical Leave Act, is if you don't meet the general standard, you don't have 50 employees within a 75 mile radius, you can't be held civilly liable. Um, one of the questions we've got, Kevin, um, Eric, I defer to either of you, but it asks if if you are an employer with fewer than 50 employees, um, but your state's order, your shelter at home or stay at home order, has deemed you to be an essential business. Are you exempt from these um, paid sick leave and emergency FEMLA provisions? Uh, not necessarily. No, I mean, you're going to do, you're gonna have to work through the math of would complying with this be something that would jeopardize the viability of our business? Or, well, they're seeking leave because of the stay-at-home law. We're essential. That law doesn't apply to us. You don't have to comply for that reason. But just because you're essential, I don't believe that is an exception in and of itself to anything in the CRA. Kevin? Yeah, I agree. I was just reading, uh, reading some more questions. I agree with you, Kinder. Uh, we have a question here that I have to read verbatim because I believe I know the author. And um, the author's not throwing any softballs here, uh, but I'm going to go ahead uh, take a swing. 
anyway, it's can the leave to care for a child whose school is closed be taken intermittently, uh, e.g. spouses tag teaming to care for the child? And the, the, I, I will not mention the name to protect the guilty there. Uh, you know, from my perspective, again, uh, no, I don't think they I don't think they're at automatically entitled to that. I think it has to be taken um, in, a, in a block. And I do think if you employ both spouses, however, you should um, consider allowing that tag team tag teaming approach. But on our terms. Uh, it is an expansion of the traditional FMLA. There is the birth of a child provision that may be analogous, but this is a new provision. And so I think the employer should consider saying, uh, if you employ both spouses, um, hey, um, I'll let one of you take one week off and the other the next. Uh, and uh, But I do, you know, for a total of, of up to 12 weeks, as long as schools are out uh, during that period. If the, if the uh, question is referring to a situation where you only employ one spouse and a spouse at another company uh, wants to do this intermittently uh, with your spouse at your company, uh, you do not have to accommodate that. Uh, but again, you may. So what we're talking about here are two different things. Uh, what, you, what you're required to do, if you, even if you don't want to do it, versus may. And I think you may in that instance, but you do not have to. Um, hey, Kevin, just as an aside, I know we've gotten asked this question. We've only got about 30 minutes left in the webinar, um, but we are happy to provide to you a copy of this PowerPoint after this presentation. Um, another thing that I am happy to provide to all of you um, is, the, is the Act has said that employers are going to be required to post a notice, just like you would for all other wage and hour and other employment-related issues. You're going to need to post a poster or other document on the place where you normally make employee postings. Um, we have been told um, as recently as yesterday afternoon that the Department of Labor is going to give us um, a poster template um, by no later than today. And so I will commit to you all to providing you via email a copy of that posting um, along with a copy of the presentation. And I think we're also going to endeavor to make this webinar available um, electronically in the future. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is our plan, is, <clears throat> excuse me, our plan is to make sure that model notice is available on the task force webpage. And so as soon as we have it, you know, our, our intention is to put that up there. Yep. Okay, so um, looking down now, uh, I think we've bumped... Um, we have dealt with um, the majority of slide 17, or we've certainly dealt with 15 and 16, down uh, through 17. I think we have, um, we have dealt with most of 17. I will speak to the last bullet point on 17, slide 17, which deals with stay at home, uh, stay home or shutdown orders and how to determine whether businesses are essential. And that, that has become a, a cottage industry uh, in and of itself. Um, we have a, uh, we have a, our, the, the approach that Spillman has taken has been twofold. One, we have a government relations group throughout our footprint in the various states and at the federal level who are trying to, uh, obviously put our clients' interests as essential businesses forward, um, so that we, um, you know, so that each, I just got a question, so that each governmental agency, whether it be a local or, um, uh, a state or maybe ultimately federal or regional approach 
that our clients' interests uh, in being designated as essential businesses um, are put forward. And we've been successful uh, with some, you know, with some uh, not necessarily top of mind essential, uh, you know, businesses being designated as such. So uh, the determination of how a business is essential is made by the uh, entity who issued the order in response to just a question we just got real time. Uh, so if it's a gov- you know, governor's executive order, then the government makes the governor makes a decision. And if you'll look, so there's a lot of work that goes in on the front end to those orders. And then as in Pennsylvania, in fact, Pennsylvania um, has updated, you know, issued two different times uh, revisions to the designation of essential business and behind, you know, inside baseball, as I'm sure everybody on the, you know, it's not news to anybody on the, call a lot of times that's a function of uh the, the governmental relations entities uh uh springing into action and we've done that in pennsylvania and part of the uh revision up there to an expansion of the definition of essential is uh, a, re- a result of good work by some of my partners or our partners uh in the gr group up there and then secondly the after the fact analysis is a cottage industry as well because these orders are prepared by human beings and they're prepared in relatively short order and quickly. And a lot of them are just copying from what another state did, but adding in some political expedient uh, industries along the way. And so there's no, you know, you know, healthcare sound, sounds easy, uh, but it's healthcare and it's all, uh, you know, service industries supporting that. So what if an industry produces masks, uh, but also produces, uh, you know, garments of clothing, which is a real issue that we're wrestling with now, is part of their business essential? Is their entire business essential, uh, et cetera? So that the determination of whether a business is essential is a cottage industry uh, that um, Eric and Carrie and I work with, but we work with our GR folks uh, on that. So I think, you know, you would be well served uh, if there's any question uh, as to whether or not you are or could be um uh, essential uh, that you work with your uh, legal team, including a government relations specialist. Anything to add on that, uh, Carrie or um, Eric? Let me let me add one takeaway on the state. If you are essential, we are recommending uh, you know letters given out to your employees because uh, the the um, the enforcement of these uh, stay-at-home orders is becoming more robust involving law enforcement and in some cases the national guard and we've had clients with employees who have been stopped on the road and asked for their papers uh, which is obviously not a good position to be in and so we've advised and prepared for uh, clients to use and we use it internally we we were we were shocked pleasantly so that west virginia deemed the lawyers of all people to be essential uh, and uh, we use them internally but we prepare letters some folks are laminating them attaching orders etc uh, that you give to employees and uh, that you provide um, with the ability to show in the event they're stopped and ask why they're out, uh, that they're part, they're going to work, or they're coming home from work, or they're running errands from work. So we do advise employers who are essential um, in, the, in states or, or regions where there is a uh, stay-at-home order in place to, to utilize these letters. And uh, you can email us after the seminar if you want samples. We haven't put that up on the website just yet, but we can get you those. Yeah, the one thing I would add to that is enforcement is going to be arbitrary. Don't make one of your employees get into an argument with the 
member of the National Guard or the, the, the state trooper that stops them if the for whatever reason the officer doesn't accept or the guardsman doesn't accept the uh, the notice, you know, be very considerate of that is a perfectly legitimate reason for not being able to come into work. That's a good point. Uh, transition to slide 18, and we've had a number of, uh, of questions on this. Uh, what the heck is a furlough? How is it different from a layoff? <laughs> Uh, upside, downside, pros and cons for furloughs versus unpaid status, uh, unpaid leave rather versus um, a layoff. Uh, do I have to treat, you know, all folks in my organization the same as to whether or not I choose to lay them off or furlough them? Um, uh, Eric, do you have some general guidance for folks on here uh, about those terms, layoffs being probably familiar to everyone, furlough being not as familiar probably to everyone? Uh, Kevin, I was with a, an organization of employment attorneys the other night, and we we're talking about this. And these are terms we use neither as a true legal definition of anything. If you tell somebody they're on furlough, it implies, and it says, I think, the right message. We think this is temporary. Um, but to me, it's really an issue of whether you're laying somebody off permanently, whether you're laying somebody off on a temporary basis. And the issues are going to be if it is a furlough or any sort of temporary layoff, you know, that is still possibly a person that is going to get your health insurance benefits. So you're going to want to check your policy. You're going to want to talk to your carrier because health insurance policies are going to vary from employer to employer um, as to whether or not a zero hour employee is going to qualify. If for any reason the employee does not qualify, if they are on a, a temporary layoff, a furlough, make sure you get them the COBRA notice. Don't back yourself into uh, a COBRA violation with those stiff penalties uh, in, in this time of crisis simply because you're putting somebody on a temporary leave and they sh that is an event, that is a qualifying event, and they should have gotten the COBRA notice. Um, also, if it is a permanent situation where you're laying somebody off, permanently um, and you're not maintaining their benefits, you know, what you're going to want to make sure you're doing is you're going to pay out any of their accrued leave um, that they would have under your policies. And while the law in West Virginia has slowly been walked back over my time here, um, it's still an obligation. And it's an obligation in most states. It varies from state to state. You're going to want to make sure you get that paid out. Uh, to some extent, you might want to just pay that out as um, to be as safe as possible. Um, if you are a large enough employer, if you are at least, oh shoot, 100 employees, I believe, um, you might have some warrant obligations depending on the scope of the layoffs. I should know those numbers off the top of my head, and I apologize that I don't, but if it is, if you're a large enough employer and you are laying off a third of your workforce, if you are closing a full uh, work site, you're going to want to get with counsel. You're going to want to walk through your WARN Act obligations. We certainly believe that this is an unforeseen circumstance um, that would not require the 60-day notice of a WARN Act. Uh, but you still have the obligations to make the WARN Act notifications if it's going to be a loss of employment of six months or more. And as far as unemployment, you know, that has been, we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but in most states, if you are down to a zero-hour employee, you're going to have the ability to access unemployment. 
that was covered under you know, phase two, a lot of funding for that. And uh, the CARES Act, the phase three legislation, and I, I've seen reports that there's going to be payment of an additional $600 a week for a period of time for employees that are put on unemployment. Of course, that hasn't been passed. Who knows what the final act will actually look like. But, you know, this is a business by business decision. And you're really thinking, how long is somebody going to be out? How long do I think I can maintain their benefits uh, and, and treat them like an active employee? Kevin, any, or Carrie, any yeah. other thoughts on that? Hey, hey Kevin, Kevin, I actually... Um, I, it, the next slide, I just wanted to point it out for you guys. I had a client um, here in North Carolina who contacted us. Um, they received a generic notice from Blue Cross North Carolina uh, that touched on this issue of whether or not an employee who is not working any hours could still remain on a benefit plan. Um, that notice seemed to indicate um, that they were giving a little bit more control to employers than they might otherwise. Um, and said that employees could remain on health insurance if the employer considers them to be active um, employees during periods of temporary layoffs or reduction in hours and the premiums are paid. Um, and so, you know, you have two choices there. Um, that particular client looked at um, whether they wanted to continue them on um, with benefits under the normal plan or COBRA them and then to pay those premiums on their behalf. So you have a lot of options that you can consider as you're deciding whether to do a furlough versus a temporary layoff. But those decisions need to be made based upon your unique circumstances and what's facing you as a business. And I think one of the questions we got, um, Kevin, I'll throw it back to you and Eric. Uh, the, the question really said, you know, we've given some employees leave now, but what happens if we close after April 1st? Um, my opinion on that is that so long as you're making a business decision and not doing it out of an effort to avoid the paid leave obligations, um, you probably don't create a lot of liability. But if you're doing it yeah. specifically to avoid the leave liability obligations so that you don't have to provide leave or you only want to lay off those who qualify for leave, you might have a problem. I think that's great. I think that's absolutely accurate, Terry. I, I don't think this is a statute nor do I think there's any statute out there, uh, but other than perhaps the National Labor Relations Act on occasion, that says you got to stay open. Um, you know, the, the, the law says you, you, you can't shut down some or part of it for discriminatory reasons. I'm not going to shut down this business and, you know, move it, move it to hire a bunch of young people, uh, you know, uh, move it to hire uh, and reopen it to hire a bunch of people who are not, you know, uh, do not have kids uh, who are eligible for this act, et cetera. But, you may make a business decision. I would caution you uh, that, you know, while every, in my opinion, every layoff, you should have legal counsel involved in the deliberations. <clears throat> in these, it's, it's particularly more uh, important. And I'm not, uh, I am not clamoring for work here. I'm just telling you as a practical matter, this is going to be a fine line discussion where you need to make sure that any candid discussions you have about the impact of the act and the impact of CARES and its financial um, uh, effect on your decision to lay off, that those conversations and deliberations are protected with legal counsel because you're going to make them. I mean, I'm going to look at the act and determine internally it's filming. Hypothetically, I probably better not say that, but if, if, if it push came to shove, I would personally uh, factor those in. Um, I would not, um, I would not want that to be evidence of the fact, however, that any decision I made down the road 
uh, had to have been motivated by the act because I considered the tax credits. So I think now more than ever, when you are making layoff decisions, make sure you have counsel involved uh, because um, you can make a business-based decision that's unrelated to the act. But I think in this situation, you're necessarily going to be talking about the act when you make it. So um, I, I would add that, that layer. I've gotten a few questions, um, if you guys don't mind, uh, on the same topic that I do think, while a little bit out of order, um, we probably pass it and need to loop back. And that is, um, what pragmatically, what do we do with employees? Uh, you know, we're, let's say that we're in an, we're in an area where, that, where there's an order. We're deemed an essential business. Uh, we have employees uh, who don't have uh, kids in any reason uh, or any you know, protective um, triggering event. Uh, under the CRA or under the extended family medical leave to take them out uh, and to get them home. Uh, but because of, of their fear of, um, you know, being infected, perhaps they're immunocompromised or perhaps they have someone at home it is, or perhaps they just, you know, they, they don't know what's going on and they don't want to be at work. You know, what do we do with those folks? And I think it's, I think the answer is, and I certainly want your all's input on it too, Carrie and Eric, but I think the answer, first of all, we're dealing with that situation more than we're dealing with any situation at all because the law, while it's still uh, evolving and still not super specific, does give us some bright lines as it relates to kids at home, out of school, et cetera. It's that, that gray area where it doesn't give us any guidance that we're getting most of the questions. So uh, I think it's, a, I think it's, a, I think it's an, a sliding scale. I think first, and it's a matter of how much risk you, ha you want to, to stomach. Uh, if I have an employee, you know, my first, you know, who, who's in that position, not entitled to leave as a matter of law, but who is concerned about coming to work and who is immunocompromised or has someone at home who is or what have you, then I am going to um, look hard at my practices relating to leave and try to give them um, a leave of absence. Uh, I also think, um, you know, if possible, let them use benefits or, or not. I, I think um, that would be the the most risk adverse, the least risky approach would be, you know, to let them not work um, if they can uh, not work and the business can do without them. Uh, I think that blind adherence um, to, you know, a, a, a no-fault attendance policy or making sure they come back if there's no leave, et cetera, I think that is, um, while probably permissive legally, is going to be risky when we're on the other side of this this thing. And then I think um, there can come a point where we are lean and mean enough uh, that we absolutely have to have some person in some position or some people in some positions that, um, that the time for affording that leave has run out and we need to uh, make a tough decision to sever somebody and replace them with somebody who will come to work. But I think that should only be done after we've exhausted every effort to provide them with um, paid leave first, unpaid leave second, if available, and then perhaps some type of unpaid, non-benefited furlough where there is an expectation, albeit not a promise, on the back end to come back. So from my perspective, there's kind of a continuum of dealing with employees, and it's real, your, your approach is really um, a function of how important are they to the business? And what is your appetite uh, for risk in a time that every juror we know uh, who would who would ever serve on a discrimination case uh, two years from now, let's, let's assume they're filed here in the next few months, 
every juror on that jury is going to have remember this experience and how their employer treated them. And uh, I think that should shape how we how we conduct ourselves. Um, and um, Kevin, I thought I put the slides up before a second ago. Um, you know, both OSHA and the NLRA have some language that speak to an employee's refusal to work. Um, they set forth some standards when an employee is allowed to refuse to work. Um, but they, you know, they really ordinarily relate to this this idea of an imminent danger um, and and a, a generalized fear without more from COVID-19 is, is not likely to rise to that level. Um, but most of Kevin's advice was practical. It's, it's be human. It's um, be understanding. For, for folks, there is a lot of fear. We have a couple slides at the end to talk about how to deal with your employees, how to, how to help them deal with that fear and come into the workplace. Um, but when you have an employee who says, I don't want to come into work, don't just make a snap judgment and say, oh, well, you're just being scared for no reason. Go through the process, check the boxes to make sure you're complying with the test under OSHA and the NLRA to assess, do you have some type of a risk in the workplace that is greater than a generalized generalized fear? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and we skipped the slide on unemployment, which is slide 20. So I wanted to go back to that briefly because we had gotten some questions, Kevin, about um, the impacts of unemployment. Just briefly, some states have made clear in their executive orders that have come out post-COVID-19 how they are going to charge employers, if at all, for um, claims for unemployment. Both Pennsylvania and North Carolina have made very clear in their Q&As and other regs that they are not allocating charges to employer accounts for benefits paid related to COVID-19. Um, West Virginia has told employers that they should contact the contributions and accounting office for questions. Um, I, I don't know whether that's a nice way of saying, um, if you call us, we'll tell you you're charging you. And all in all, it's, it's silent. Um, and then haven't seen any guidance in Virginia from the impact on the employer. Um, but as you can see, we've already talked about it some, there is an effort to expand unemployment for your employees um, who, are, who are laid off as the result of this. Um, and the, the law passed last night or that's being considered for passage last night would even expand further those rights for unemployment. Yeah, hey, I'm sorry to switch gears. Uh, we, we've had several emails coming in. Where can we find a sample of the essential employee letter? Uh, and can we get a draft employee letters? Yes. Uh, as, as again, as part of the, you can call lawyers and not be billed for anything. Uh, following this uh, uh, on a, on, you know, a, a free uh, a free takeaway, so to speak. Just email any or all of the three of us, and we'll shoot you a sample uh, essential letter uh, and answer any questions you have about it. It's, you know, we're not gonna uh, uh, we're not gonna leave you hanging on that. So just email any of us, and we can get you. Uh, uh, a draft essential letter for employees who are working in an essential business in an area where there's otherwise uh, a lockdown. Okay, um, let's talk about um, workers' comp. Um, generally speaking, um, and I, 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 um, I apologize, but my notes uh, on here do not reflect Gary uh, or Eric or me, who is supposed to handle this, but covered. Uh, covered by workers' comp, um, I'll go ahead and take a stab at it. Generally, uh, diseases are not covered. Um, to, to, be, uh, to be covered 
this, you know, this COVID-19, there would have to be in most states or certainly the states in which we practice uh, throughout our footprint in the mid-Atlantic region, the employee is going to have a burden of proof to show that, um, you know, look, I got it in my employment or it is a heightened specific uh, hazard um, in in my particular employment. Um, And so I think, you know, an EMT, a nurse, uh, you know, a healthcare provider who's in the line of fire more than others. Um, maybe it's a comp case uh, that's winnable for the employee. But I think for the vast majority of the rest of them, um, it's going to come out that they're not covered uh, by workers' comp because they could have picked them up uh, anywhere, you know, uh, anywhere at any time. Eric and Carrie, uh, do either or both of you have thoughts on that? I, I agree with you. Okay, um, you know I all right. Oops, sorry. Uh, Eric, we've got a couple questions on how to handle um, sort of this assessment within the workplace of folks who might or might not have symptoms. If you have someone who's been out of work, are you um, requiring some type of a proof of notice for their return? A- absolutely. And we are certainly clear to do that. That is not a disability-related question. And I think in a time of pandemic, that's re- a requirement. Um, and I think along with those lines, if somebody is saying, I am off because of some COVID-19 reason, it is reasonable to ask for some level of certification. Uh, this may not be the time to require the general level, the same standard of proof that you would normally require. Um, but you aren't necessarily required to just take people at their word, oh, my doctor says that I have this and that I am quarantined, require something. And, and certainly at this time, a return to work is, is reasonable and is permitted. Um, and then to follow up on that, um, the CDC has published guidelines about high, medium and low risk employees. If you have a confirmed case of COVID-19 in your workforce, and um, the CDC provides a pretty detailed step-by-step Um, directions on what you should do and how you should respond. Um, But we have also been working and helping employers walk through those steps, whether it's, um, you know, obviously, if you have an employee who has confirmed COVID-19, they need to go home immediately. Um, What you need to do from there as it relates to the work surfaces and the folks with whom they have interacted, we're happy to guide you through that. But it really will depend on whether it's the employee themselves who've tested positive, who they've interacted with. Um, all of that will dictate who you need to communicate with um, on a going forward basis. Kevin, I know you've been dealing with this issue. Do you have any thoughts on um, what an employer should do with a positive COVID-19 case in the workforce? Yes, for sure. Thank you. Um, we have been. And Carrie and Kinder and I were up at 248 this morning <coughs> dealing with one in Houston, Texas. Um, uh, there are two types of situations we're running into. One's COVID-19 in the workforce and certainly self-quarantine. Certainly um, some of the busiest contractors in the country right now are those that provide um, high, high-end high uh, disinfection and cleaning and sanitizing. That's a must. Uh, there is a notification that uh, an investigation that's got to happen to determine uh, who that person's interacted with. Um, you know, if they're, if they're symptomatic, uh, they are in the highest risk group, and the and the scope of that notice is wildly broad. It's got to protect that person's interest, but it's got to be broad to the rest of the workforce. 
If they're asymptomatic, then they're in the CDC's medium category, and there still has to be a notice and steps taken, albeit a little less severe. Uh, uh, but uh, essentially, there is a notice. There's a need for self-monitoring, et cetera. And they're based on where your business is headquartered, uh, or sorry, based on where the situs of the operation of your business is as it relates uh, to the COVID, there are various reporting requirements to state and local um, departments of health, uh, et cetera. There, the, the, so that, that's the most serious. The second most serious is when um, someone, and we had this last night too, uh, Gary, if, uh, where, where um, we have an employee who has a spouse who has recently been diagnosed uh, as uh, uh, with uh, the virus, and the employee is asymptomatic. Well, that analysis uh, is 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 a synthesis of various CDC guidance on different issues. They don't lay that one out uh, where there's one degree of separation, um, and that that involves obviously a self quarantine at home if the person's asymptomatic, uh, similar cleaning, uh, a, a more restricted and focused notice at least, and perhaps a broad notice with various protections built in and an investigation. And those we're walking, those, walking people through that as well. And then the CD does have kind of the seven degrees of, of separation type deal where they call it contacts of contacts. So people who are at least three steps or two steps rather removed from someone who is infected are at low risk or no risk. And so we do have a lot of questions that we walk people through and there's some set, steps we can take, but not very many we have to take, where an employee comes to us and says, hey, my wife's coworker was COVID-19 positive. Uh, what do we do? And so that's kind of the two degrees where the CDC says this is a low-risk situation, but the CDC really is prioritizing their own, you know, their own responses. And I think as employers, there are some steps we can and should take there. So it's really a function of, you know, fact-specific, but we're dealing with those not 24-7, but 19 or 27 right now. And so there, if you have any of those situations, you do need to get with legal quickly uh, to make sure that they... I mean, as you guys can tell, product. as you can tell, Kevin's working so many hours, he's extended the number of hours in the day to 27. Um, but in all seriousness, we're here whenever you need us. Um, and Kevin is serious when he says he was sending emails at, for work-related issues at 2.45 in the morning um, earlier today. I know we just have a couple of minutes, but we've got a couple of slides here that really talk about um, how to deal with the stress your workforce is feeling um, and also to sort of deal with telecommunic concerns to make sure your employees are feeling tethered to your organization. This morning on my way into work, um, I heard an NPR story about Kentucky Governor Andy Brashear, who is apparently making daily 5 p.m. telecasts to um, the K Kentucky citizens. And part of what he's doing in every one of those meetings, I think, is equally applicable to employers. Number one, he's keeping them well-informed and up-to-date on what's going on. So he's attempting to give them information. And the second thing that he's doing, which has apparently garnered him a 100,000-person Facebook fan group, is he's telling everybody everything's going to be okay and we're going to get through this together. I think similar advice is especially important for employers. Um, don't be afraid to let your employees know what their rights are. Yes, these new acts require you to post notice, 
but don't hesitate to explain to people how your their existing benefits and time off works. Um, don't hesitate to step up and provide information to debunk some of the COVID-19 rumors that folks may be reading at home on their Facebook pages. Finally, try to empathize and be generous as you work through these issues and answer your employees' questions. You know, we all have questions about what these laws mean, about what this pandemic is going to do. Um, and if you're trying to be generous and creative with your employees, you're going to be able to come to come out on the other end. Um, from a telecommuting perspective, the big takeaway is work to establish constant and ongoing communications with your telecommuting employees. Consider a morning call to start the day and set the tone. Have video conferences. Um, you know, there are statistics out there that show people work harder from home in the first week of telecommuting than they work in the office, um, but that they subsequently get lonely very quickly. Take steps to tether those folks to your organization. Um, we originally had a, a slide here for, for other questions. Um, I, I think we've tried as much as we can to answer your, your questions. Um, yeah, this is, uh, Gary, I agree. Let me, let me add two points to that and then, and then wrap up because I know your all's time is valuable, um, um, all those who are attending. Uh, number one, on the managing the pandemonium and, and being creative, et cetera, uh, Carrie's absolutely right. I mean, we're, you know, every business needs to take the steps necessary to weather the storm for sure. But we all know that the services we provide are going to be all of us. You know, every single person on this call will be in high demand at some point in the near future as a rebound. And that if we do the right things, our competitors will have, and some of our competitors will have not and will be in a better spot uh, than they are to fill those spaces. However, what we can't lose sight of short term is we all need our best and brightest people to be with us at that moment. And so when we're thinking about, um, you know, these opportunities, et cetera, think about your human resources as literally human capital that we need to figure out a way to keep through this process, keep them tethered to us uh, and, and make sure that they emerge on the other side feeling like we did everything we could for them because they will then be with us forever at that point, and we will be best positioned um, to respond to that need that will be there. So I encourage you to take a long look and use it, you know, view this as a long play uh, because it is. Too often we get hung up in all of the swirl uh, around us, but doing the right thing now um, for the good of the order will engender confidence for the rest of our careers. Uh, number two, or lastly, uh, thank you very much uh, to Pamela uh, uh, in um, our client relations department. Uh, thank you very much to Carrie and to Eric Kinder for taking time to do this. Thank you very, very much for all of your questions on the front end in real time. We tried to answer most of them, but as I told you, um, uh, please feel free to reach out to us and uh, you won't even get a bill. So, uh, yeah, you know, if, you, if we missed one question. Yeah. Go ahead, Eric. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say, if we missed a question, please feel free to email one of us or all of us. And you see right. that I've put the slide up with our contact information on it that we would encourage you to reach out via phone or email to any of us. Also direct you to the Spillman COVID-19 Task Force resource page. Um, we've been issuing a lot of e-blasts and other um, marketing materials that contain updates. We are housing all of those at the website that's here at the end, which is the SpillmanLaw.com slash COVID-19-resources. 
And then finally, want to make you aware, um, Kevin has told you that we will be doing in the future um, a task, or I'm sorry, a tax-based webinar that is in the pipeline probably next week once we have the additional um, IRS guidance. Um, but tomorrow, Friday, and Monday, we have three additional webinars planned. Tomorrow is going to focus on Pennsylvania-specific issues featuring um, former Governor Thomas Corbett. Um, Friday, we're going to be talking about additional ways to protect your business, contract issues, insurance issues, um, other items that you all may be considering. And then finally, Monday, we're going to talk about bankruptcy and creditors' rights issues. Um, so hope you can join us for any of those. The time for the Monday webinars to be determined. If you'd like an invitation to any of those, please reach out to myself or Pamela directly. And again, we really appreciate you all joining us today.